Hey all, and welcome to Own Rooted, brought to you by Olmsted Wine Co. I'm your host, Max, and our guests today are Daniel Shehab and Matthew Rorick of Forlorn Hope, located in the Sierra Foothills. We started by talking about glass bottle pricing and packaging, of all things. And it doesn't really sound like an interesting subject, but these two are such frank and hilarious people that it turned out to be a really good time. It was a conversation full of real talk, and I have never, ever, ever laughed so hard while recording this show before. struggle that we are having and I I know that other producers are having right now is glass for example like one of the things that are happening in this day and age of uh post covid or covid still happening but like <laughs> yeah. how how that's changed things supply chains and the tariffs I'm sure are having something to do with this as well so glass is like impossible to get and it's going to be like three times as expensive mm-hmm. as it normally is is when and when you're trying to make a product like with the queen wines where we're trying for it to be like hella affordable and very accessible to people. It's like, how much of this do we eat Mm -hmm. in order to keep that going to the point where it just doesn't even like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? And I think there's a lot of pressure on producers, especially in the more like nature wine world to have these like super affordable wines. And I think consumers need to understand more about the whole process in order to make it make sense and make it sustainable in the long run. And like when we do, hopefully in the near future, like when people are starting to like really advocate for vineyard workers to be paid more, that's going to be another factor that like people are going to have to pay more for this wine. And so, yeah, it's just a thing that I've been kind of ruminating a lot in my mind. And so I think it's good, you know, for, for consumers to really understand, like, this is an agricultural product and not just like wine just appear. Cause honestly, like not that long ago, I had never even thought about how wine was made. Like I didn't even think about the fact that it was from a fruit. Then people had to do all these things to it and for it to get to here. Like it was just alcohol, you know? And I was just like, whatever, it's fucking wine. I don't care. It's like wine has been, the industry has been kind of like hiding behind this like mystical, magical, like, oh, wine, it's so mysterious and sexy, but like, we really need to not do that anymore. And people need to know, people need to know. I was just looking at an email from a Tetra pack. Do you know what those are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to see what the future of packaging is going to be, because I feel like glass is becoming less and less, not sustainable, but it it seems it's like we need other options. So mm-hmm. just kind of looking at that. And it, it's basically like, do you have a billion liters to do? Then if not, you can fuck right off. So yeah, we'll see. But <laughs> like, um, it would be nice to have something else to uh, package wine in and like seeing how canned wine has gone through its beginning stages and, and is still, I think, Meh, I don't know. Yeah. I have I have thoughts yeah. and feelings, but um, yeah, just looking into some more sustainable, both like for the environment and for for money, <laughs> to see how that goes. It'd be fine. I want like a Capri Sun of wine. You know what I mean? Like I just wanna, I wanna it's stab it straw, with the the, straw. Yeah. <laughs> Take it with you wherever you go. I think you go. that would do really well in the market. <laughs> I don't know. 
sake. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you guys do any kegs? Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, I mean we have. It's <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> I, I hate every time someone asks me this question, it feels like I have to start from scratch in this conversation. And Matthew and I have this conversation from scratch, like literally every single time. And then we end up doing nothing because there's just so many things. And so the, the short answer is we've done them and I don't know if we want to keep doing them. And I feel like we just need to make everyone want boxed wine. It's yeah. the future. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> and it, in Australia, they call them goon bags. And like, that's the life we want is just like a big old bag of wine in a box. So you can make it classy or you can take it out of the box and slap it. Kegs, kegs are fine. We were just, we were also just like talking about it between the two of us the other day. We're like, how long does it last? Like, how long is it good for? I don't like, you don't know how long that wine's sitting in that keg. And, and is mm. it, I just don't know the logistics of it. And it, I guess it stays fresh because it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm suspect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we've had situations, you know, we're not ain't naming no names, but we've had situations where you know people have you know asked us for kegs and said, please, please, oh, we really, really want them in the market. There's, you know, they're going to do great. This is going to be awesome. And did up some kegs for them, and I think it was something like six, seven years later, seeing that there were still a handful of kegs in this person's inventory that were you know hadn't even been taken out to market <laughs> thinking wow um cool so i you know we we invested you know some time and energy into looking for one way recyclable kegs so you know uh recyclable plastic uh basically it's like a big giant it's like a giant two liter it's a five liter two liter bottle inside of a uh cardboard case uh, so it's one way recyclable. We fill them up here at the winery and then the end user, the restaurant or wine bar uh, can take that uh, empty keg. The plastic goes in the plastic recycling. The cardboard goes in the cardboard. Good to go. You, you don't have to even worry about the logistics of shipping stainless kegs out and back. <laughs> but I also don't know that those kegs were designed for aging wine for six to seven years. And just the thought of what might've happened to a wine that was really, you know, that was asked, we, it was supposed to be a wine that was going to be drunk quickly. Hey, this is fun. We'll get these out. We'll you know, deliver these and they'll be ready for the summer. And woo-hoo. And then, uh, yeah. So there's, you know, conceptually kegs make all the sense in the world, less packaging per serving. You know, like absolutely. But the reality, uh, the reality of kegs, you know, there, there's a stigma uh, or it shouldn't say a stigma, but there's a particular perception of kegs and of the wine that comes out of kegs. Uh, you know, there's the perception that it's supposed to be that it's going to be cheap, that it's going to be less expensive because it's in a keg. And so, you know, we've also, as, as Danielle saying, man, we've had this fucking conversation mm -hmm. so many times where you know, someone will approach us and say, hey, I don't want to just do uh, inexpensive wines in keg. Like, I want some top-end stuff. Will you put top-end stuff in a keg? I'm like, sure, we'll, you know, we'll put some of our, and, you know, not that we make ridiculously expensive wine, but, you know, we'll put 
you know, something like our, you know, Grenache or our, uh, you know, our Trousseau in a keg. And then it's going to cost this much. And they're like, no, well, we want it to cost the same as the, you know, like the queen in the keg. Like, well, yeah. Why would that make, why does that make any sense? Yeah. Oh, well, because people won't pay this much for a, for a glass of wine out of a keg. They'll only pay this much. So we need the keg priced at that. Like this, yeah. How about you just buy a case of 12 bottles and (laughs) we'll call it a day. I love the concept, but. Even if it's like, even at the lowest, like what people are wanting it at for our cost, it doesn't make it make sense. Why are we doing this? For what? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing about kegs that just hasn't panned out and worked out more than anything other than the other, like, shitty logistics of, like, our warehouse doesn't want to keep them in stock and and all the other stuff. But it's like, nobody wants to pay for them, but they want them. Mm -hmm. How's, explain to me how that (laughs) Uh, speaking from the more sales-oriented end, a lot of the places that would be conceptually interested in a kegged wine are also places that have fewer keg lines because they are more wine-oriented and are loath to give up those keg lines because they actually need them in order to satisfy people that are not as wine-focused. I used to run a delivery truck and like beer companies have all of these sets of uh, logistics that they're familiar with. There's a system that exists. And so until... Like, how do you reach critical mass, right? Like maybe at some point it would make sense, but there's a, you know, it's kind of in a way to me seems to echo the electric cars thing. It's like, this is a great idea, but how do you get from it existing in, and, you know, I live in Vermont and we have like a bazillion freaking Teslas around, but you know, who's got the Teslas, right? It's not farmer Joe down the street. And so there's yeah. like a, there's this kind of push pull between like the ideal and the actual thing. And then there's this massive gulf in the middle that requires an enormous amount of heavy lifting and there is voiced demand, but nobody seems to be volunteering to do the heavy lifting. Exactly. Totally. But just wait till Farmer Joe gets himself a cyber truck. <laughs> <laughs> this is the future the liberals want. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, and, and and not to like not to carp on, you know, on problems with kegs but you know they, they're just there's there are other there are other issues that uh, you know that i've seen in execution on the service side as mm. well i'll again refrain from naming names but went into a restaurant that i love that i you know when i used to dine out i remember what that was like when i used to <laughs> dine out i would dine out there and this place had it had a number of wines on tap which was really cool and it was do you see talk about loving the concept one of the things that was great was that it was and i will reveal a little bit it was in the bay area they have relationships with all these wine producers in northern california and so people would make just little one-off wines and keg them for this restaurant and so you i would walk in and see like shoot there's a friend of mine they did this like cool little blend and oh there's that you know another friend of mine did that oh and you know yeah cool and so i get to like kind of check in on my friends and see what you know wines they were making it was it was compelling and i'm sitting there talking i'm talking with the server one day at the bar and i then like noticed these lines running up the ceiling like what like is that the are those the keg lines and she said yeah it's awesome 
uh, we've got all the kegs in the back, so we don't have to mess around with them and waste space under the bar and, you know, or, you know, sit here and like you're, you're sitting at the bar watching me while I'm like yanking a keg out from underneath the bar and trying to shove another one back in. That's all handleable in the back where there's plenty of room. And then we just have the wines piped through to here. And so I'm looking and these lines are exposed one. So they're at room temperature mm-hmm. for the most part of their travel. But then they're also at the top. They're up at the ceiling. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's hotter up there. And then three, they run right over the top of the pizza oven. Oh, so, man. You know, maybe you get like... Uh, you know, a couple of good servings and then you get one from a section of wine that was sitting in a line over the pizza oven for three weeks. You know, you're like, wow, man, that was a, that was a really nice Banyols. So I don't, you know, there's just, there, there, there are little things like that too, I think in terms of execution where it's, it's such, it's a whole different ball game. It's not just, cool, we've got a service fridge under the bar and we've got a cellar in the back and we can keep our bottles there. They're, they're just other things. And oh, then heaven forbid we talk about actually cleaning, flushing and cleaning the lines. Mm. So they're, they're just, there are a lot of logistical issues, which as Danielle says, just get rid of that, all of that headache and we go over to the goon bags. Oh, done. <laughs> yeah, def- I definitely think one of the, obje- uh, the obstacles there is figuring out how to make those look cool. Aren't the revolution. You know? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think, our, I mean, for us, for our queen packaging already has a really like fun, relaxed vibe that I think it would transfer really well to a box. The only box wine, honestly, that I can think of is like Boda Box. So it's not, mm-hmm. we're not starting at a great place, mm-hmm. but I have seen a couple other brands popping up and I think it just takes the the retailers to you know have to do that work that's the only thing so i'd love to get a little prototype i'd just like to see i'm just curious because i feel (laughs) like that i really think i I know we talked a little bit about this too i really think tetra packs are a great option totally Um, i think what is happening is that they're only working with huge brands so if perhaps we could start the revolution in that we need them to see the potential of working with smaller brands. I just brought it up because of the glass issue being such a big deal for a lot of people right now that I I'm curious to see how this could this could push the market to change in a in a really interesting way, maybe for the yeah. for the better. I'm not saying we're getting rid of glass completely, obviously, but like what are our other options that make sense that aren't just a can because mm-hmm. Cans can be cool, and I've had some cool things in a can. I've all has also had some reductive wines in a can, and I don't. Yeah. I'm ex- kind of excited with what's going to come next for packaging in our realm of the wine world, the more nature mm-hmm. wine, not the like big, huge brands that are already doing all types of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's like looked down on, you know. Mm-hmm. So like, what? How are we going to make it cool? We should keep. We should keep looking back. You know, yours. Uh, you know, for inspiration, keep looking further back and. You said the you know one of the only uh, bag and box brands you could think of was Boda Box. Well, I think we should just go right back to Boda Bags. Maybe we sh- we can release all of our wines in goat skins. <laughs> oh wow, bladders, deer bladder, bladders, it's- goat skins, purely natural, one hundred percent. Not vegan. <laughs> Not even remotely vegan. No. <laughs> There's actual meat chunks floating in the slime. So. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> 
By this point in the conversation, I was having a grand old time, and I was really excited that we were talking about a profoundly unsexy topic and keeping it fun. So I asked about what the other challenges are that are cropping up these days. Other than the, the impending really? doom of fires. <laughs> yeah, under, under. <laughs> that cute little... Um, I, Don't worry about that little guy. You know, you, you know it's funny. You, you talk about, you know, we talk about people's perception of, you know, of, of what it means to be a winemaker, a wine producer, what it means to be in the wine industry. There's this, you know, this glamour and this romance attached, you know, a lot, I think a lot, in a lot of cases that isn't actually the case, but, you know, in some cases it actually is, in some ways it very much is. Um, and you ask what some of the challenges are that we're facing, you know, labor is, probably one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, that we're going to, that we're going to have to wrestle with, you know, labor, labor will continue to be an issue. What are vineyard crews, the, the, you know, the money that they make, what, what it costs per bottle of wine in human labor, um, you know, for those, for those vineyard workers to be fairly compensated and have health insurance and, um, you know, not, not be getting the shortest of all of the short ends of the Mm. sticks that are handed out in this industry, you know, from the production of a wine to its final consumption. There are, there are, there are, there are lots of players in that whole process from production to final consumption. You know, there are players that get shorted a lot, but the, the vineyard crews, the people that are out there actually sweating, ridiculously sore backs, Cuts, sunburn, insect bites. Don't even get me started about the star thistle in our vineyard. You know, the, the mm. people who like put the real, you know, the, the the literal blood, sweat, and tears into the production of the wine and are getting paid the least. You know, when you, you start talking about that stuff, you know, with with consumers, a lot of times you see eyes start to glaze over, and like nobody nobody really wants to hear about someone else getting a shit sandwich. When all they want to do is hear about a walk in the clouds or, you yeah. know, tell me how glamorous it is to just drink wine all day. If that's what you do at your job, you just drink wine all day. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> uh, after a day in the vineyard, yeah, I'm going to need probably something a little stiffer than a glass of wine. Mm. Um, but anyway, the, you know, just making sure that these that these folks who are doing the, you know, the hardest work and to be fair, the most important when it comes to the health of the soil and the vines and the quality of the wine, you know, it's 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 hard enough going to, out to market and saying, hey, we're, we're going to increase the price of this bottle because we want to pay our vineyard crews more. And people are like, hey, fuck you. But that's also even, that's just making the assumption that we'll still have access to labor. Mm. And, you know, agricultural labor is getting more, it, it's just, it, even in the eight years that I've been running this vineyard, it's become more and more problematic, more complicated to source, to, to, to deal with that I'd say, uh, and water are probably the two biggest uh, issues for California uh, wine growers. I won't throw climate change in there because that's all of us, Mm -hmm. you know, wherever you're, wherever you're, you're growing grapes or drinking wine, we're all dealing with that. But specifically in California, there are going to be water problems and there are going to be labor problems. We also have you know, some things that are you know that you might not uh, as readily 
connect to climate change. You know, we talk a lot about uh, not just warming, but change. And one of the impacts we're seeing is an increase in extreme weather. So not necessarily just hot, but we have frost. Uh, we're we're uh, we're our vineyard RHV is up at around two thousand feet, and we typically do. You know, we see frost in the spring. Uh, we've got frost protection. We have uh, micro emitter sprinklers. Well, I don't know anything about this micro emitter situation. That sounds wild. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, you can, and you don't have. Like, I, I use the term micro emitter. It's basically just a a really wee sprinkler and it emits micro amounts of water. So it's a micro emitter. Um, you, we actually in parts of the lower vineyard also have your like normal rainbird type sprinklers, uh, you know, that you'd use on your lawn, uh, that broad broadcast sprinklers, which work just as well. Um, but they're not as precise. Um, they, they cover a broad area. So you're throwing a lot of water around the micro emitters, just put this little fine mist out, uh, mist of, of vapor out in the area that you really are you know interested in protecting uh, but either way whether you're using micro emitters or broadcast irrigators using water for frost protection is such a it's <laughs> it's science uh, <laughs> brings my heart so much joy to have these little you know little bits um there that are not unlike a bit of magic i think mm -hmm. um the way that the way that this works is as the temperature drops below freezing uh, if you're sending out a little sheet of water um and i should make a caveat as well this is really only effective before bud break and up to about one inch or mm -hmm. so, you know, give or take, but about one inch of green growth. Mm -hmm. Once you get above, once you have more than an inch or so of green growth, it becomes really difficult to protect that uh, new growing tissue. Mm -hmm. And as I explain the process, you'll you come to understand why. So you say we've got the bud or about an inch of green growth, and we start when the temperature drops below zero, and we we've got the, we've got the micro emitters or the broadcast sprinklers going. So now we're getting a little sheet of water that falls across on top of the green growth, and that freezes. So now we've got a little blanket or a shell of ice uh, around the green growing bud. And then the water continues, you know, we continue to fire the emitters or the sprinklers. And so that, that little sheet becomes a shell, a good, a good firm shell. Now, one thing that might not make sense to you immediately, it might seem counterintuitive, but when you start to think about it, it actually does make sense, is that when water, when water moves from the liquid phase to the solid phase, it's an oh. exothermic reaction. Yeah. So heat is given <laughs> off. And it makes sense, I guess, if you think about it. When water, so if, if, if water is liquid and you're reducing its temperature and it's moving into a solid phase, well, it was warmer before. Where does that heat go? Mm -hmm. In tiny, tiny amounts, it's, it, it's given off in, in, in the case of we're talking about this shell around our new bud, it, it's given off both away from the bud and also inside that little casing toward the bud. And it's not much, but it's temperature that's just above freezing. So it actually keeps that, that ice keeps the new tissue warm, or we shouldn't say warm, maybe keeps it just above freezing yeah. and protects the, the tissue. 
so it's uh, it's it's kind of cool. That is a magic trick. <laughs> That's so cool. You know, so we, we've got frost protection in the vineyard because we do have frost issues here. With climate change, what we're seeing are sort of more aggressive frost events. And at times of year that we're not uh, as accustomed to having them. The first year that I was here at RHB in 2013, um, we had a pretty severe frost event in the low vineyard in uh, May, May 25th, I believe. Um, and we lost about 80% of the crop in the lower vineyard. Mm. And I thought, man, that's pretty crazy. I talked to the, you know, our, our vineyard manager, our foreman, who'd been here for 15 years prior. And he said, yeah, you know, that, that happens sometimes, but it's sort of a, you know, once every, you know, decade or so kind of thing, you'll, you'll have this, you know, late frosts, late spring frosts. Well, now <laughs> we're seeing those kind of frosts more regularly and mm. even later. In fact, uh, last year we had, uh, we had frost on June 5th, oh I mean, my in June. <laughs> like this is, this is, that's not a spring frost anymore, right? No. Like that's a summer frost. And there's, you know, there's relatively little you can do as a, grower to protect your vines from a frost like that. Uh, at, at, you know, by June, we've got over a foot of uh, green shoot growth. Mm -hmm. uh, you just, you can't really protect that. You're going to lose your crop. So that, you know, that, that's, that's something, you know, as, as we see climate change fully upon us, you know, that's something that I did not expect to have to deal with, you know, drought, fire. Yeah, we're in California. Those are normal things. Summer frost, you know, as we get these climate oscillations, you know, that's something I wasn't really expecting to have to tangle with. What are some other ways besides frosts that you're having to rethink what you're doing along these same lines of climate climate disruption? <laughs> I guess adjust expectations of how much fruit we get out of the vineyard every year. <laughs> I've been looking at putting uh, putting in some varieties that are uh, in the low vineyards, some hybrids that are more mm -hmm. frost resistant or or cold tolerant. You know, of course, the big the big concept that that will you know continue to need to be addressed are dry farming varieties uh, and rootstocks that are more drought tolerant, drought resistant. It, actually, talking about dry farming, just as a little sidebar. You know, people often will tell me, hey, how come you don't just, you know, dry farm like they do in Europe? And it really depends on what part of Europe you're talking about. In California, have a Mediterranean climate, which means we have cold, wet winters, or used to have wet winters, and we have dry summers. And that, that contrasts to a continental climate which is, of course, you know, if you're talking about most of, most of France, everything north of the Mediterranean coast, in which you have significant amounts of summer rainfall. And if you have, you know, high water table and vines can get their roots down into the ground and you get it that you have that supplemented by not a huge amount, but a decent amount of summer rainfall, sure, you know, that, there's no point in irrigating. The vines do have all they need. But if you don't get one drop of water all the way through the summer, the only way you're going to be able to dry farm is if your vines can find a little bit of water somewhere down in the subterranean regions. And, it, it, you know, in our vineyard, it's 
<laughs> it, as we continue to explore this and look into, you know, whether or not we'll be able to dry farm in the future, um, it may be very specific to particular parts of the vineyard. Um, mm. The limestone subsoil we have here, uh, you know, gets carved up underground by water, you know, f- finding its own channels through fissures and cracks and rocks and then enlarging those to the point that water will run in certain areas underground in the vineyard and not at all in others. And so that, you know, that's something that, you know, sort of medium to long term that I'm thinking about, you know, how to sort of shift those gears and start to evaluate, uh, you know, where in the vineyard we can continue to farm uh, should water become extremely scarce. Forlorn Hope is a potent business with a lot of land and a huge amount of wine to manage. But it started as Matthew's plucky side hustle. Growing a passion project into a robust business is, uh, not chill. And all sorts of unexpected obstacles pop up. You never know what you're going to stumble over, to say nothing of the ardors of learning how to manage other human beings. I asked Matthew to talk about this transition from scrappy one-man band to helmsman of one of California's preeminent natural wine companies. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it has not been easy because it's, uh, you know, it's none of what I wanted to do. Mm. You know, I never wanted to, I never wanted to go from the, from the blue collar set to the white collar set. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to be on the forklift or on the tractor and and not uh, in front of the spreadsheets there. And there's, there's also kind of a reason that, that it, it, the things ended up uh, the way that they did, you know, when you, when you don't have a plan, it's really hard to know where things are going because you haven't tried to point them in any, in any particular direction. And, uh, you know, when I, when I started Forlorn Hope back in 2005, I knew that I wanted to make some wine. I knew that I wanted to work with varieties that I was unfamiliar with so that I could learn about them. I just, it, it, you know, it was, it was sort of exploratory. And as it grew, I, as I saw the potential for growth, I got excited that, Hey, this is going to make it this actually, you know, this, this, this thing has, this thing could be viable. And so I just kept pouring everything that, that the project generated back into it Mm. to, to, you know, to further drive growth. One of the benefits of working with growers all over Northern California was that I got to see soils and growing conditions and climates, you know, from Mendocino to the Sonoma coast to, you know, to Napa and Carneros and Sassoon down to Santa Barbara County, out to Lodi and up into the foothills and, and really kind of see all of these different spots and start to get a feel for, Hey, where, where would I, if I had my own, vines in the ground, where would I want that to be? Like what, you know, which, which of all these totally different areas and, and, and mesoclimates in California, like where would I want, where would I want to drop my vines down? So it was a, you know, that was a kind of a, 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 a benefit of working with so many diverse growers. Um, but in any case, all I was looking for was like a little three acre or maybe a five acre. <laughs> um, the idea was that I would still, I would be able to do my own farming in my home vineyard, uh, do all the, you know, all the work on that myself and still buy fruit from all the growers that I had developed relationships with. So I kind of, you know, get the best of both worlds. And then a number of totally unforeseen occurrences opened doors and led to some opportunities for me 
which <laughs> as I look back on them now, it seems like I, I, the, the image that forms in my mind is, is like if you're uh, standing at the top of a pretty steep hill with an overfilled 50 pound backpack on your back and you decide to see if you can just run down the hill. That's pretty much what it was like. I mean, like <laughs> the faster you run, the more trouble you're in and the more the pack's bearing you down. You're like, holy shit. <laughs> um, and then now, you know, eight years later, I turn around I'm like, how? okay, I was looking for like a three or a five acre vineyard. And now I'm running a 350 acre ranch with 75 acres of grapes on it. <laughs> what, what just happened? And, yeah. and it just happened. Like it's been almost a decade. But it still feels like the blink of an eye. How big is your uh, your team? Well, um, it's Danielle and myself, um, and Demetrio, um, our vineyard manager. Um, I'm so lucky to inherit him. He actually has been on this vineyard. He's been working through three changes of ownership uh, since 2000. So <laughs> he knows this ranch. He knows this property forward and backward and mm. the learning curve for me if he had not decided if he had not been willing to stay on and work with me the learning curve would have been brutal mm -hmm. um so yeah big ups to him uh but so yeah so it's the three of us uh danielle and demetrio and myself um that comprises the full-time crew <laughs> Whoa. Um, obviously, it takes more than three people to yeah. do things like prune 75 acres. Right. That was immediately where my thought acres. went to. It was like, how are you pruning? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we uh, actually, Demetrio um, does some, he does some work for a couple of other vineyards um, up here in Calaveras as well. Um, and he has crews that he runs on different properties, on a handful of different properties. Mm. And so we get the benefit of good sized crews who are completely accustomed. They, they're, they are, they're vineyard crews. And without having that sort of network of farm workers, we'd be in a tough spot. You know, maybe something that that isn't quite as obvious in general, but it, as you start to think about it, it, makes more and more sense. You know, the further you are away from a sort of center of industry, uh, the harder it is to find resources for what you're doing. And in Napa or Sonoma or Lodi, for that matter, there's so much viticulture going on uh, and there are so many wineries that you can easily find very close to hand vineyard supplies, vineyard labor, winery supplies, equipment, technicians, you know, all the things that you need that you, you know, that you may need if you have a broken you know, well pump or your forklift goes down or you, you name it. And up where we are, yes, there is a little... I shouldn't say fledgling wine industry because it's been around for quite a while, but it's a small, it's a small wine industry, the wine tasting rooms in Murphy's, that sort of thing. But in terms of, you know, having a labor pool of, uh, you know, um, seasonal help for things like, like harvest time or pruning when you, when a lot of labor is needed in a very short period of time without, without those relationships that Demetrio brings, 
we'd be pretty screwed. I'm not really sure how long it would take me to prune 75 acres by myself, <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we may never have to find out, which is cool. What were some of the things that were really challenging for you early on to try and figure out? <laughs> when you move into a situation that, it, you know, that you didn't <laughs> put together and one that's, that's got some history and this is, and to be fair, this isn't even a really old spot. Uh, Barden Stephen O planted the first vines here. Uh, well, the, the vines that we still have here in 1975 and converted uh, a barn that had been built in the late, in the mid to late 1800s into his winery. And so that, that was the genesis of the Stephen O ranch or the Stephen O wine project. And every, you know, I would guess like five, seven, 10 years, there would be another growth surge, growth spurt, and it, something would be added on. And, you know, the building was extended or a new floor was poured or a new concrete pad was put right outside to accommodate some new tanks that were coming. And so it was, it was built really piecemeal from the mid seventies until Barden sold it in 2005. And <laughs> walking into a situation like that, you're you're trying to figure out okay let's look at something as simple as the where are all the water pipes like how do i even how do i figure out what which pipes are taking water to the vineyard which pipes are taking water to the house which pipes are taking water to the cellar and how do i shut any of them off if there's a problem and you can guarantee that there are multiple problems with all of those systems, but even just figuring out which damn valve to turn off so you can get to work on another part of the, the water system. And then never mind the electrical, never mind the drains. I last year I just found out, I just found figured out how the winery settling tanks work where they're even where they're located and i found this out because they just started overflowing in the middle of the field like oh wow what is that a geyser we got another natural attraction here we can we can you know get some tourists in hey it's the rhv geyser it's you know it's winery wastewater so it's all of your lees mm -hmm. that and i always like to point out there's a difference between between sewage and wastewater. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about sewage. We're talking about just the stuff that, you know, we rinse out of the barrels and rinse out of the tanks and it goes down into a drain in the ground. And then it goes somewhere. <laughs> and, and not, then, to, not to say know, that it doesn't you know, have its own distinct uh, fun smell to it because it's, <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly does. <laughs> And, and and that is a very strong motivator to figure out how the hell the system works and, <laughs> and what needs to be done to fix it. But my, I mean, my point is this, this, you know, none of, none of the stuff is laid out in a way that made sense to me because I wasn't there. And it was, like I said, done piecemeal. And so there's, Oh, you know, normally you would just run your, you would run your, you know, your, your winery drain lines right, right down here. And then you would have your settling tanks right there. And no, it's like on the other side of the building with a, you know, three 90 degree turns in the pipe and all this other, you know, you're, well, I have no idea what was being considered then, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, just basic systems, figuring out how the heck the whole place even works was tough. 
logistics on site. Okay, cool. So the, the, the Stephen O winery at its peak was producing about 40,000 cases, 40 to 50,000 cases of wine a year. So they were actually from crushing and fermenting 40 to 50,000 cases of wine. They were also buying um, about 50,000 cases worth of bulk wine from Australia, importing it in bulk and bottling it here mm. and selling it as an import selection. So all told, they were producing about 50,000 cases and also bottling an additional 50,000. I mean, it was a, it was a full on, yeah. I mean, it was a full on endeavor here. And we are of course, very much smaller. You point out that we're kind of huge in terms of like the California natural wine scene with 75 acres, but we're, we're not even, we're yeah. not even coming close to doing what Stephen O is doing here at its peak. And so you think, oh, wow, well, you inherited this facility that could push 100,000 cases of wine through it a year, and you're only making 5,000 cases. Um, man, that, you know, you must have room. You got like handball courts and, you know, like a, you know <laughs> Olympic track and you, know, <laughs> you got heaps of room. But the reality is our program is so different than the one that Stephen O is running. At this point, unfortunately, some of the connection got screwed up and I lost the end of what he was saying. But what he's getting at there is that artisan work takes a lot more labor and attention than a turn and burn wine factory. Producing massive quantities of anonymous, mechanized wine is not the same thing as producing handmade, creative wines in small lots. You know, maybe in, this would be a good thing to kind of elaborate on a little bit in the, you know, in quotes, natural wine world. There is, you know, maybe a misconception about what a grower or what, or excuse me, what a what a wine project really constitutes, and you know, talking. I heard you guys earlier talking about the the fantasy of the wine world and 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 what wine is. Um, in California, the reality is most winemakers don't farm. Mm -hmm. They don't own their own vineyards, and they may spend little to no time in the vineyard. And what time they do spend in the vineyard is typically, uh, you know, for sampling uh sampling grapes uh you, rather than actually doing any uh any hand work any you know pruning shoot positioning uh, or got heaven forbid tractor work and and i'm sure that people will want to at me about this uh, and i do <laughs> and I have, I have friends who do spend time on tractors and farm their vineyards so it's i'm, I'm i realize that i'm making a sweeping generalization here but for the most part this is the case most of the, you know, most of the producers, most of the producers in natural wine in California don't own their own vineyards. They're not actually farmers. They're buying fruit and making wine. And that's still tough to do. It's a tough business and making wine is not, a, is no joke, but farming is a whole other, it's a whole other thing. And, and, you know, and I'm not casting aspersions. I just want to make a clarification. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's the, the, the barriers to entry to farming are huge in California. Land prices are ridiculous. You know, labor costs, it's brutal. Um, and so, you know, like, like I said, I'm not casting aspersions. I sell fruit to friends who don't own their own vineyards. It's, you know, it's not a, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not finding fault. 
it's just, I think, important to understand if we're talking about a producer, there's oftentimes a lot of confusion between a grower and a winemaker. Listen, I think it's important that we get into the weeds on subjects like labor inequities and the realities of a wounded climate, but cultivating hope is just as crucial. In his personal experience of the global pandemic, Matthew found a surprising amount of good and in it a lesson for the future. You know, over the over the, the course of the pandemic, I kind of gave in to my natural desire to just withdraw from the world. And one of the ways in which that manifested was, of course, getting to spend as much time as possible uh, at the ranch, up in the vineyard, not leaving the property. And kind of coming along with that was a, what, you know, God, what, how would you phrase it? Like sort of a, a, a delving into being not 100% off the grid, but, you know, a little more providing a little more for myself and being less dependent on the outside world for various things. I mean, I still, you know, I don't, I don't, produce my own petroleum, nor uh, my own hydroelectric power. So yeah, I'm still tapped into the rest of the world. But this weekend, uh, I had a couple rabbits that I had taken out of the, the vineyard here that I made into terrine. And mm. it was so, it was so, so much fun doing that full stop, but just make, like making, becoming a little more self-sufficient and connected, directly connected to the land that we're farming, you know, going forward, actually growing more uh, vegetables, more food crops here cool. on the cool. ranch. Uh, if I really carry out my threat to never leave here again, maybe some livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been, it's, a, it's, God, I don't know how to say this without sounding kind of schmaltzy, but doing that, uh, doing this kind of thing, growing my own food, hunting for, you know, I, all my own meat actually caused me to look inside myself quite a bit more to come to understand the things that were important to me and the things that I really needed. Uh, it was a, it was an unexpected avenue toward introspection. There's, there's good that's coming out of this. We can take the good things like the time that I've had, for instance, to, you know, engage in the activities that I really liked on my own and also the bad, uh, you know, the things we've had to reevaluate and, you know, maybe reconstruct uh, or take a different course on. And then Danielle had her own message of optimism to share that I thought was just a perfect note to end on. Through all the kind of like Grim Reaper shit that's going on right now, I also think that things perhaps could be changing. Like, like the innovation that's that's cropping up from this pandemic and and will have to crop up due to like supply issues, the labor, the water, the fires, like everything like things have to move in some type of direction. And I, I see a lot of leaders in the industry, young people stepping up and not only creating space for um, people that haven't had space in this industry before, but also like focusing on, on the grassroots issues of, of the things that are holding, I think holding our industry back. And, and so I'm excited about like that movement of, if change coming from, from the ground up like that is pretty cool. Um, even though it's hard to not be like, I don't want to say I'm disillusioned, but it is hard to, because like Matthew was saying, you see how hard the people in the vineyard are working and then how like poorly they're treated in general and by our government, for example, 
people that are coming from mainly Mexico or South America to work here. And then also just like how hard we work and like during harvest, like literally you feel like you're dying because you're so tired and you've been working for so many days and all people can be is like, oh my God, you're like, at you just frolicking in the grapes and you have like the best job ever. And you're like, you have to keep up the fantasy be on one hand. You're like, listen, Becky, this shit kind of sucks sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to be real with you. <laughs> like, this isn't all the fun that you think it is. And, and I think that's why maybe like, conversations like this are important because I think it behooves everyone for them to know that this isn't just fun and games. Like this is very hard and it's people's jobs and lives. And we want wine to be fun, of course, to a certain extent, but we also need you to understand that like things are happening, that (laughs) climate change is happening, fires are happening, like all these things are happening. Um, So I think good can come of all of it. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to Danielle and Matthew for the humor and insight. For more content, you can follow us on Instagram at OlmsteadWine, and check out OlmsteadWine.com for articles, producer write-ups, and our monthly newsletter. Till next time.